Chapter 16, Part 2 of Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Aaron Bennett. Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. Chapter 16, The Federal Constellation. War and Treaty-Making Power In two vital respects, the powers of the executives of the old and new English lands differ. First, no treaty with a foreign power is binding until ratified by the Senate. Indeed, as we have seen, no minister can be appointed to a foreign power until approved by this chamber. This vote of the Senate has several times kept the administration from entering into injudicious arrangements. Even General Grant and his cabinet committed themselves to the acquisition of San Domingo. Recently, the late administration was led into a very questionable treaty with Spain. The temptation for a few men, and especially for one man, to characterize his administration by some brilliant stroke calculated to dazzle the populace at the moment, or to appeal to the national vanity, is a source of real danger in all popular governments. Not what is permanently valuable, but what is presently telling, is apt to be considered. Against this danger, for which the monarchical system has no provision whatever, the Republican opposes the cool, deliberate decision of an impersonal judge, the Senate. No man's glory is brightened or dimmed by the decision. What is for the lasting good of the nation is thought of, not what will bring temporary popularity to a cabinet or save a ministry. It must surely be a prejudiced mind which does not feel that the advantage is here upon the side of the younger land. The second vital difference is even of deeper import than that just recited. In the Republic, war can be declared only by the two houses of Congress, approved by the President. Before the sword can be drawn, both branches of the legislature must be wrought up to the pitch of this extreme and momentous act. The House, the Senate, and the Executive, in the person of the President, must consider, discuss, and decide the question under surroundings of the deepest solemnity, and with the nation, the world, anxiously looking on. Every representative of the people, and every senator, may speak in his place and record his vote for or against. Public attention is thus fixed and concentrated upon the crisis, and the public discussion enlightens the people. Time precious time, whichever cools the passions of men and works for peace, is thus gained, and every official, every member of the legislature, publicly assumes the fearful responsibility of engaging in the slaughter of his fellow men. If ever war be proclaimed by the Republic, which God forbid, since all her paths are peace, it will not be the act of one branch or another of the government, but the solemn public act of all, legislative and executive. Contrast this with monarchical countries, in which a few excited partisans, sometimes only one or two real actors, who sit in a closed cabinet chamber, commit the people to criminal war, sometimes to prolong their own tenure of office, or to promote some party end. My American readers may not be aware of the fact that, while in Britain an act of Parliament is necessary before works for a supply of water or a mile of railway can be constructed, Six or seven men can plunge the nation into war, or, 
what is perhaps equally disastrous, committed to entangling alliances without consulting Parliament at all. This is the most pernicious, palpable effect flowing from the monarchical theory, for these men do this in the king's name, who is in theory still a real monarch, although in reality only a convenient puppet to be used by the cabinet at pleasure to suit their own ends. Next to the sapping of the roots of true manhood in the masses, by decreeing their inferiority to other men at birth, this is the most potent evil which exists today in the British Constitution, and it is chargeable solely to the monarchical system. It does not rank with the first evil, however, being mainly material, while the other is of the spirit, injury to which is the gravest misfortune which can befall a nation. But this vital truth not one of the so-called practical statesmen of Britain sees or will consider, or perhaps what is nearer the truth will venture to tell. Not one of them, apparently, has a soul above cheap corn, which is worshipped as the highest good. Indignities to the spirit of the masses, by which manhood is impaired, they seem to argue, may safely pass unnoted, so long as their bodies are fed. And yet better, far better, for a nation that its food for the body should be dear, and equal citizenship be the birthright of the soul. We have many evils to remedy in our political system a million times greater than the monarchy, once said to me a prominent statesman and possible prime minister. I looked pitifully upon him, his eyes blinded with the dust of conflict, and his mind so absorbed with trifling party results that he could neither think nor see an inch before his face, much less study cause and effect. Could he do so, surely he would realize the truth that in the royal family, as in a nest, lie the origin of all the political evils which afflict his native land and which he deplores. All that this able, earnest, patriotic man is laboring to remove is only the legitimate spawn of this one royal family institution and is never to be met with except where a royal family exists to breed them. Resolve that the head of the state shall be elected at intervals, and thus found government upon the true idea, the political equality of the citizen, and all the political wrongs of the few against the many fall as if by magic. Were I in public life in Britain, I should be ashamed to waste my energies against the House of Lords, Church and State, Primogeniture and Entail, and all the other branches of the monstrous system. I should strike boldly at the royal family, the root of the upas tree from which spring all these wrongs. Surely the democracies of Europe have no question to consider more vitally important than the war power. How many useless wars in the past would have been avoided had the Republican method prevailed? How many in the future would be prevented by its prompt adoption? The masses are ever more pacific than their rulers ever more kindly disposed to those of their clay and other nations than the rulers are to theirs. The people do not share the jealousies of their rulers. If the war of power lay in the hands of the representatives of the people in Europe, as it does in America, there would be fewer wars. The position of the Republic upon this question of war is still further advanced by the fact that both political parties by special clauses in their Declaration of Principles, have pronounced in favor of peaceful arbitration of international differences. Thus, before America can have recourse to arms, no matter what party be in power, her adversary must first be offered arbitration and decline it. We envy not the nation which shocks the moral sense of mankind by refusing this olive branch of peace when presented.
Of all the desirable political changes which it seems to me possible for this generation to effect, I consider it by far the most important for the welfare of the race that every civilized nation should be pledged, as the Republic is, to offer peaceful arbitration to its opponent before the senseless, inhumane work of human slaughter begins. And for all the just and good measures by which the Republic has won my love, next to that by which she has made me her own citizen, and hence the peer of any man, Kaiser, Pope, or King, thus effacing from my brow the insult inflicted upon me by my native land at birth, which deemed me unworthy the privileges accorded to others, next to that for which I will fight for her, if need be die for her, and must adore her forever, I thank the Republic for her position in regard to international murder, which still passes by the name of war. The Executive Power, the President The Executive Power is lodged in a President who for four years, the term of his office, is the most powerful ruler in the world. He is not only the first civil magistrate, but he is Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, and of all the military forces of the nation, including the militia of the states whenever called upon by him. More soldiers would respond to his call than that of any other ruler in the world. The number of men who in case of war might be enrolled in the militia approaches seven millions. Almost every able man of whom would consider it his duty to shoulder his musket and march at the word of his commander-in-chief, the president. What are French or German or Russian hosts compared to this of the democracy? Even man for man, as soldiers, they would not compare with the educated Republican. But this great army costs the state but little. It is always engaged in the pursuits of peace and only to be called upon should emergency arise. The president's control over the forces is not merely nominal, it is real. When the most popular general in the army during the Civil War made his famous march to the sea and had the enemy at his feet, it was feared that unsatisfactory terms for his surrender might be made. The following telegram was therefore sent which, though bearing the signature of the Secretary of the War, was written without blot or erasure by President Lincoln himself. I have seen the telegram. Washington, March 3, 1865, 12 p.m. Lieutenant General Grant, the President directs me to say to you that he wishes you to have no conference with General Lee unless it be for the capitulation of General Lee's army or on some other minor and purely military matter. He instructs me to say that you are not to decide, discuss, or confer upon any political question. Such questions the President holds in his own hands and will submit them to no military conferences or conventions. Meanwhile, you are to press to the utmost your military advantages. Edwin M. Stanton, Secretary of War. The generals, of course, obeyed. Only a few days later, General Sherman, just fresh from his march to the sea, entered into a convention with General Johnston which had political bearings. A telegram was promptly sent to General Grant instructing him to cancel General Sherman's agreement, and this was done. Suppose, if anyone can suppose so lamentable an abdication of duty, that in a weak moment the American government had sent a Gordon to arrange terms of peace, and that he disobeyed his instructions or had presumed to declare war upon his own account. In the President's opinion, a simple order like the foregoing would scarcely have met the case. He would have had the insubordinate arrested, court-martialed, cashiered, and probably shot. No, not shot, but consigned for life to some lunatic asylum. President Lincoln could have court-martialed General Grant. 
or General Grant when President could have court-martialed General Sherman, or either President dismissed either General when at the height of that General's power, or arrested him, as Richelieu did his conspiring General, at the head of his legions, without raising a murmur of popular dissent. The people would have reserved their judgment till the next election, and probably have enthusiastically approved, as indeed the British will approve if they ever see it, a display of masterful power over all others by their elected chief of state. No soldier has ever dreamed of questioning the supreme authority of the president, nor has the nation ever shown the slightest jealousy of its exercise. Why should it, since the president is not above its reach, but is only its own duly appointed agent for a specified term. When that expires, he transfers his powers to his successor and seeks again the ranks of private citizenship. One returns to Congress as the representative of his district, another resumes the practice of law, a third becomes a farmer. Neither sinecure, place, nor pension is bestowed upon an ex-president. He has been supremely honored by his fellow citizens. He has in turn done his duty. The obligation is upon his side, and he remains profoundly grateful for the distinction conferred upon him. The state owes officials little. They owe the state much. Such is the Republican idea. The salary of the president is now $50,000 per annum, 10,000 pounds. An official residence is provided for him at Washington and a country house within a few miles of the city. At stated times for some hours each week, the president receives such respectably dressed and well-ordered people as choose to call upon him. Being the servant of the people in a country where all citizens are equal, the humblest has the same right to call upon him and shake his hand as the most distinguished, he being as much the servant of the one as of the other. By many such significant customs, the powerful president is reminded of what it would indeed be impossible for anyone in the land to forget that the sovereignty of the republic resides not in the servants of the state but in the citizen and every one of whom rests an equal share of it the feelings and desires of the citizen it therefore behooves all officials to consider the president selects of his own will and without interference the members of his cabinet as the british prime minister does they are removable at pleasure the president being his own prime minister the cabinet officers are of equal rank one difference between the two countries in regard to the cabinet is that, while the British cabinet sit in one or the other house and communicate orally with it, in America the members of the cabinet do not appear in person before the legislature, but report to it in writing. This is, however, simply a matter of convenience. There is nothing but custom to prevent them from appearing and making their statements in person, although they could not take any part in the proceedings of the legislature. At first, the President appeared and addressed Congress at the beginning of each session, but the plan of placing before it a written message as often as deemed necessary has been preferred. The people would not favor a change to the British practice, for the separation of the executive and legislative departments is held to be of much importance. Either House can call at all times upon the President for information upon any question connected with affairs, but as the call has to meet the approval of the House, the government is freed from the petty annoyances which it is in the power of any injudicious member to inflict under the British system of nightly questioning. The president, in like manner, has free access to Congress, and, indeed, it is his duty to report to it from time to time upon all matters of which, in his opinion, Congress should be advised. 
He is also invited to recommend measures for its acceptance. The President represents the nation in its relations with foreign countries and receives all ambassadors. It is he alone who has the power to pardon offenses against the laws of the United States. He also has a veto power over the acts of Congress, which, however, is invalid should the measure vetoed be passed again by a two-third vote in both houses. He is eligible for re-election, and several have been elected for two terms, or eight years in all, as Washington was, but he having declined re-election for a third term lest the office should seem too permanent, it has become the custom not to elect beyond two terms. The Americans have indeed shown wonderful sagacity in the selection of their presidents. Considered as a body, it would be impossible to equal them in character, ability, education, or manners by any body of men ever born, appointed, or elected to any other station. They furnish a striking contrast to the occupants or heirs of thrones in every particular. When Britain was disgraced by its George III, the Republic had Washington. And until Queen Victoria ascended the throne, the comparison had certainly always been in favor of the Republic. It is the fashion in all things to praise the past and claim that there were giants in those days, but it is nevertheless true, in my opinion, that the presidents of the Republic in our own times have been worthy successors even to Washington, Adams, and Jefferson of the past. Grant has a firm place in history among men possessed of great ability. Garfield's career from a poor school teacher to the presidency is exceedingly difficult to parallel, while the political genius of Lincoln has never been surpassed. It is always well to remember that there are giants in our own day, too. The election of the president and vice president is not by a direct vote of the people, but by a vote of the states in an electoral assembly in which each state has as many votes as it has senators and representatives in Congress that is in proportion to its population. It has been claimed as an advantage of the monarchy that, having a permanent head of the state, the excitement and expense of a general election every four years is avoided. But, it may be answered, the hereditary head of Britain is not a political head at all. An automaton would do just as well, for it could certainly be used as a model to set the fashions and clothes, and probably could be made to lay foundation stones, or open fancy bazaars with little less careful coaching and attention than it is generally necessary to bestow upon the live figurehead. Besides, it would be much less expensive. The real ruler of Britain is elected just as often as a president of the republic is, for it is a curious fact that parliaments last an average of four years, which is the presidential term. Even as I now write, the appeal is being made to the British people, Gladstone or Salisbury, as clearly as in the last presidential election it was Cleveland or Blaine. It is a fiction, therefore, that the monarchy has any advantage, if it would be an advantage, which I dispute, over the republic in this respect, for they are situated precisely alike. They each elect a ruler every four years. The excitement and the expense of a general election is far greater in the monarchy than in the republic, and in both equally the head is elected. Besides this, members of Congress are elected by the states along with the presidential ticket, just as members of Parliament are elected when Gladstone or Salisbury is chosen. So that in one sense, the election of the president costs nothing whatever, as state elections have to be held whether a president is to be elected or not, and voting for the electoral ticket when voting for representatives involves no additional expense. 
Of course, more money is spent in presidential years, but this is the personal contribution of the zealous partisans and not a charge upon the state. It will surprise Britons to know that no sums comparable to what they spend on political contests are ever spent by the Americans. The total sum expended by the national committees of all parties, even in the last exciting presidential contest, did not exceed $600,000. £120,000. The Republican election, moreover, is conducted with far less riot and disturbance than unfortunately characterizes the appeal to the electorate in older England. An American is surprised and shocked at the rowdyism often shown at public meetings in Britain. He is accustomed to have both sides granted a respectful hearing. I have never seen any public meeting in America broken up by gangs of the opposite side, nor a public man denied a hearing. In this respect, the example of the younger political community might well be followed by the elder. When the people of Britain, however, obtain their full political rights, there will be less exciting questions to discuss than those which now press for solution, and political gatherings will then be more peaceably conducted. It must not be forgotten that when a vital issue like slavery was under discussion in America, the right of free speech was often violently assailed, as it still is in Britain. When the surroundings of the president and the royal ruler are contrasted, Republican simplicity stands out in strong relief. The president walks about as an ordinary citizen, wholly unattended, and travels, as a rule, upon ordinary trains, arrives in New York, and registers at the hotel without previous announcement. Beyond a brief mention of the fact in the next morning's papers, nothing is published about him. As I write, he has gone to Buffalo, the city of his former residence, in order to cast his vote at the election for governor of the state of New York. It will weigh just as much as, and no more, than that of the mechanics or laborers whom he will find surrounding the polling booth. Although, go where he may, he will be met with quiet evidences of universal and sincere deference as president. There will be no parade, no cheers. The equipages of the president in Washington have frequently been so common as not to rank with those of the wealthy residents, and never, in any instance, have they been the richest or best. All the presidents have been poor men. I have known three of them so well as to state, of my own knowledge, that they left office without means enough upon which to live respectably. Of every American president, it may be said as it was said of Pitt, Dispensing for years the favors of the state, he lived without ostentation and died poor. They have all left office poor and pure. One turns from the dignified, simple life of the Republican ruler to that of the nominal head of Britain, feeling that there he meets a coarser and less finely developed civilization. The parade and vulgar ostentation which surrounds at every turn the nominal ruler of the parent land is indeed in striking contrast. The cost to the state is as 10,000 to 600,000 pounds. The entire family, mother and his sisters and his cousins and his aunts, are supported and bands of retainers who are supposed to dignify the throne. The state processions strike an American as grotesque masquerades, and the official coaches in which royalty moves about provoke the inquiry, What circus has come to town? One instinctively looks inside for the clown, this much for the crowned king. But the contrast is not all in favor of the republic, for when the real ruler, the uncrowned king of Britain, is compared with his fellow ruler here, then the palm for true dignity cannot be awarded to America. 
Nothing can exceed the simplicity of the surroundings of the prime minister of that great empire. His salary is only one-half that of the president. His official residence is a shabby, dingy, old brick house instead of the noble executive mansion standing in its own park at Washington. It is simply number 10 Downing Street and is as shabbily furnished as a New York boarding house. Mr. Gladstone lives and Mr. Disraeli lived as sensibly as our president and set just as healthful an example, which, however, counts for little in Britain since the prime minister is not, like the president, the first personage in society. Indeed, when the Liberal Party is in power, the Prime Minister can scarcely be said, in one sense, to be in society at all. He is proscribed and has no influence upon it. But his day approaches. The democracy will soon require that the man who has the people of England at his back shall no longer tolerate a king before his face. Wherever he appears in Britain, as in America, he will take precedence. He shall stand before kings. The children of the Prince of Wales the prince himself, if he be unwise, and the children of all of the present dukes and lords of the empire are no longer to follow in the train of the pretender, but in that of the only real, the elected king. It is so in the republic, and what is here is to be yonder. What America does today, Britain reaches in the next generation. We must reverse the old proverb, as the old cock grows, the young one learns. Nowadays, it is the young cock which leads the crowing. The old one does the learning. Room, then, the first place for the elected monarch of triumphant democracy in Britain. We have now passed in review the three branches of government, judicial, legislative, and executive, for which the Constitution provides. The ease with which this instrument has not only done the work over the country for which it was originally designed, but with which it has without repeated change quietly enveloped in its operation a combination of 49 different political communities occupying an area of 3 million square miles and comprising most of the English-speaking race. This is not to be spoken of without wonder. With one exception, the dispute as to the right of state to withdraw from the Union, a serious difficulty has never arisen. It seems as if there could be no limit to its powers of absorption. The whole world could today come into the American Union as equal states and develop peacefully, each after its own fashion, no man being less a Briton, a Frenchman, a German, a Russian, or a Chinaman, but all becoming possessed of a new title, proudest of all, citizen of the world. This wonderful constitution stipulates for a republican form of government, all the democracy has to do is to discard hereditary rulers as useless, dangerous, and therefore to be abolished. Sure is it that they have deluged the world with wars, put men against his fellow, and sought no end but their own aggrandizement. Not less sure that they must ever stand in the way of the brotherhood of the race which it is the mission of democracy to foster. How easily, within our grasp, fellow citizens of the world, seems the day when, the drum shall beat no longer, and the battle flags be furled, and the Parliament of Man, the Federation of the World. We may not look, however, for quite so wide and complete a union. Oceans divide the races, and this fact will keep them apart, for permanent political aggregations must ever be counter -minous. But as far as the continents of the world are concerned, there is no insuperable obstacle to their union each into one nation upon the federal system. 
the american continent is evidently destined to be so ruled the european continent is slowly consolidating for there are but five great powers today instead of the hundreds of small ones which existed before the napoleonic era a league of peace to which each continent will send delegates to decide international differences is not quite so far off in the future as may at first sight appear this would remove from the world its greatest stain war between man and man to all communities who are tending towards further consolidations and to every man who can truthfully exclaim my benison with those who would make good of ill and friend of foes we commend a close study of that great work of triumphant democracy which mr gladstone has pronounced the most wonderful work ever struck off at one time by the brain and purpose of man the profoundly conservative and yet radically republican american constitution end of chapter sixteen the federal constellation recording by aaron bennett